Good morning. Happy Easter. If you don't know, my name is Ken Weitzma, and I'm a recovering Christian holiday grump. Uh, my wife and I never fight more than on Easter morning. Um, you guys are like, he's serious. Uh, I always think I'm going to do better, but I don't. Um, somehow I just get really grumpy on Easter morning. It's something about, um, I don't know, it's all the Easter bunnies and, and having to go this way or that way and just feeling boxed in. And, and like somehow the experience of a holiday overshadows the content that was supposed to drive the holiday. Does that make sense? So my wife's been trying to teach me. She's been doing that for years um, on, on a lot of fronts. And, and uh, it's starting to stick, but so the, the lesson she's trying to teach me is that, Ken, the reason we celebrate, uh, celebrate holidays is because they are a big deal. Uh, there's a reason we buy outfits. There's a reason we gather for meals. There's a reason we make a big deal of it and that society pays attention because there is something important. That's what you do. And so if the size of the celebration is small, you're saying something about the significance. So um, Tamara lived in Israel, studied in Israel for a semester and she says, you know, when they do a celebration over there, it's supposed to be really big. I mean, it's a matter of religious pride. She even talked about the Orthodox Jews and the festival of Purim, where everyone gets drunk as a way of really entering into the experience. And, she, and I said, does it really say that in Scripture? And she goes, well, at least that's the interpretation. Um, and, uh, and so it's like... It, the idea is to really enter into the festivity and that by doing so in some sense, we help each other understand the significance. And so I think Jesus does that marvelously at a wedding when he shows up, spends the whole day, gives himself to that and continues to supply it with wine. Um, this idea that holiday matters. And so I'm trying to bend over. Um, sorry. I'm trying to bend into where my wife is at with her understanding of, of holidays and tradition, and we'll just switch to the next part of the sermon. Um, <laughs> lean into. Um, uh, but maybe you're like me, and, and you're kind of coming in, and it's, it's uh, holidays are an interesting thing, either because intellectually you wonder what we're really talking about, as a Christian, or intellectually, you wonder what we're really talking about as someone who has doubts about Christianity. And it's interesting what we choose to reflect on or study or think about sometimes and what we choose not to think about. Does that make sense? Like, we don't always apply the same level of scrutiny to everything. There are a couple of examples. Uh, we have 50 contestants for Miss America. We have two for the president. presidency. Anyone... Anyone else? <laughs> uh, I'm an author, so it's always been an interesting thing to me that if I borrow ideas from one person, it's called plagiarism. Uh, if I borrow ideas from 20, it's called good research, right? And so where we choose to look or not look is a really interesting thing. And I think that for a lot of us, when we come in on Easter morning on today, we're, we're wanting to look somewhere for some reason, and we want to we wanna get that right. And for several, the tension is, am I allowed to really think this morning, today? Am I, am I allowed to really think or process or, or even question or critique or be doubtful? And I think that's what I want to answer first. And um, if you study philosophy at all or, or culture, you might be familiar with the German uh, philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. Nietzsche was no friend of Christianity. He was actually trying to explore what ethics would look like in a post-Christian world or, or how we would drive meaning in a post-Christian world. And he says this in his critique of Christianity. He was, uh, had terrible eyesight, and so he wrote in what were called aphorisms, basically extended quotes, and kind of you see these kind of blocked out in his books. Not a sustained thought uh, for the most part, but, but just these kind of long thoughts. And Nietzsche writes this, <clears throat> Again, in a pejorative way against Christianity, a negative way against Christianity. He says, doubt as sin. Christianity has done its utmost to close the circle and has declared even doubt to be sin. One is supposed to be cast into belief without reason by a miracle and from then on to swim into it uh, as in the brightest and least ambiguous of elements. Even a glance towards land, 
even the thought that one perhaps exists for something else as well as swimming, even the slightest impulse of our amphibious nature is sin. And notice that all this means that the foundation of belief and all reflection on its origin is likewise excluded as sinful by Christianity. What is wanted are blindness and intoxication and an eternal song over the waves in which reason has drowned. That's the way Nietzsche put it. And I think it's not too far off from the way many people have experienced it, either growing up or being around Christian circles, is the tension or the uh, questions or the wrestling that I have internal about Christianity or aspects of Christianity is, is not allowed. And it's not culturally acceptable. So if I try to bring that into the community, if I try to bring that into the conversation, someone's going to look at me as if I've just done something wrong, as if doubt is sin. Does that make sense? And I have been spending a lot of time the last year or two specifically thinking through and writing on the relationship of faith and doubt. And I think this is just um, a horrible, horrible way to arrive at thinking that Christianity has this view. And I believe that classical or historic biblical Christianity doesn't jive with this at all. That it's built on a foundation that says, ask and you'll receive, um, seek and you will find. That there's this idea of leaning in and, and building on a sure foundation that can accept our questions and our wrestlings. So I want to look briefly at 1 Corinthians 15, if you want to turn there with me. 1 Corinthians 15 is one of the clearest presentations of the gospel or the good news or the Christian message that we see. And in it, Paul writes this, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you take your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. For what I received, verse 3, I passed on to you as of the first importance that Christ died for our own sins, according to the scriptures. Talked a lot about that on Friday, at the Good Friday service, if you were here. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, Resurrection Sunday, what we celebrate today. And that he then appeared to Peter and then to the 12. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time. Real briefly, let me just say what's important about this. The empty tomb is of the utmost importance in, Christ, uh, importance in Christianity. The, the idea of whether Jesus' body was in the tomb or not meant everything. It was no small thing. I, I joked in the first service that to try and illustrate how important it is when something is either there or not, I was going to like just not come out on stage for the sermon time and just wait like five minutes. You guys are looking at me like, there's, I'm glad you didn't do that. That would have been really awkward, right? Um, and then I was going to be like, see, like absence or presence really matters, you know? I have a habit of deciding that illustrations aren't good enough and then describing them um, and then reminding myself that they weren't good enough to be used in the sermon. Uh, the, the idea of Jesus' body in the tomb really mattered because a couple of things. The Jews of Jesus' day were looking for a Messiah to come and overthrow Roman Empire, Roman occupation, Roman rule that was powerful and that was controlling them in an incredibly um, totalitarian way. I mean, bloody way, with crucifixions, uh, basically going after and removing anyone who would be a threat to that rule. In fact, that's why the Roman Empire crucified Jesus, as he was a would-be king in Jerusalem where they were looking for a would-be king to have nationalistic fervor around so that somehow they could, they could all come together and throw off the Roman oppressor. And so the Roman Empire, when they saw this, would deal with it harshly and, and then that person would be gone. But that's, the, the idea is that the Jews were looking for somebody that hadn't been defeated by the Roman Empire, 
hadn't been shown that he was somehow powerless and the Romans were more powerful than he. The idea was that he was going to have a victory, not over sin and kind of fix the foundations of the world, but that the Roman legions would be removed from the city of Jerusalem. So Jesus, in some sense, is a failed Messiah. He's not somebody that that the people that followed him into Jerusalem that weekend were saying, we want this guy to overthrow the Romans, set up the Davidic king again, uh, liberate us. Oh, but as a plan B, if he dies and uh, we can just come up with some story about him being a real, real wonderful spiritual teacher and that'll almost be like the same thing. Like, you know what I mean? Like, that's not... That's not what was going on with these people. They didn't have this idea of Jesus being what ended up being this this death. Um, Not only that, but um, Jesus rose from the dead. This is a group of people that were skeptical. Jesus' own followers were skeptical. They wanted to ask questions about it. They wanted to know that it was really real. Like, what do you mean he rose from the dead? Show me. Like, where's he at? Like, I want to see it with my own eyes because that's not what I'm looking for. So if Jesus hadn't rose from the dead, you're not going to have a group of disciples going, our leader failed and was killed by the Romans. Let's act as if he really did succeed so that we can go pass that message on and also be killed by the Romans. Like, you know what I mean? The empty tomb really mattered to, to the disciples. And if you're the Roman empire who just killed this guy because he was a would-be king and he kind of um, threatened threatened uh, your power and your control so you put him to death if a bunch of people are all of a sudden kind of stirring up and saying we're going to make him a martyr we're going to make him this nationalistic hero you know because he actually rose from the dead you'd be like uh, yeah no he didn't he's right here and you guys are stupid And so disband and go, you know what I mean? The Romans wouldn't have allowed this to continue to happen because their whole idea was was crowd control and to suppress and and to not allow people to come together in a united way that would threaten their power. So the empty tomb for for the first century Christian church was incredibly important. I get people that come to me today and they're like, we should just pay less attention to whether Jesus actually rose from the dead or not. I mean, who really cares? And, and not only that, but the scriptures, they're very archaic, very old. We should have a Christianity patterned less on that old stuff and a little bit more on just kind of some progressive element of Christianity. And we need to get on board with that program. And when that comes to me, and it happens often, I, it's, it just doesn't even compute. Because I'm like, that's just not Christianity. Like the empty tomb mattered and the fact that they talked about it mattering, that is what Christianity is. So if you want to do something, go ahead and do it. But what you're really creating is a different religion that's radically about something else, not what Christianity is about. Um, This is what Paul says when we continue in 1 Corinthians 15, what he means when he says, but it is preached that Christ has been raised, raised from the dead. Now, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So we've brought this gospel, this good news, that Jesus actually rose from the dead. He's not in the tomb anymore, um, praise God. That we have a hope in that, right? And he's saying, so how can some of you say there's no resurrection? Because if there's no, if there's no resurrection, then Jesus didn't rise. And if Jesus didn't rise, then our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. So my preaching my buddy Ed Underwood's preaching, my buddy Jake Hendricks is preaching. I have a lot of friends that in solidarity on this morning, we all are, are preaching the Easter message like people like us have been doing for thousands of years. And we're doing that because we feel like it has this value and this truth. And Paul's saying, if there is no resurrection, then this preaching is useless. And if you believe in that, then your faith is ungrounded and useless too. He makes it stronger. He continues and says, more than that, we are then found to be false witnesses. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. So not only is it useless, but if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, if the tomb isn't empty, 
if we can't really explore that, the foundations of the faith, right? If we can't really dig in and say, this has to matter to us, then it's not just that what I'm saying to, to you today is a waste of your time, but it's actually manipulative and it's deceitful. And I'm, I'm being a false witness. What I'm doing as you spend time here is getting into your head and taking you away from reality to something that I'm steering you to that has no grounding in truth. I mean, that's a pretty big deal, isn't it? If there is no resurrection and Jesus is not raised, then I'm a false witness. It says, but he did, uh, then he did not raise him, and in fact, uh, the dead are not raised. So anyone you know that had a hope of being a believer of seeing God one day on, on their resurrection day, your grandmother, great-grandmother, your father, whoever it is, Paul's saying all of this thinking is wrong. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And then most strongly, he continues on with verse 18 and 19. says, Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost, And if we only in this life have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, if the tomb actually had Jesus' body in it, but this Christian faith grows up around this person of Jesus and says, there's a hope of resurrection, we can look forward to that, um, then this whole thing is actually um, a waste of time and we're to be pitied. Why? Why? Because the message of Christianity is that if you look for your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for Christ's sake, you'll find it. If you, like Lydia, who heard the message of resurrection from Paul, say, I want to believe, and you're baptized, meaning I'm identifying with the washing and the cleansing of Jesus' forgiveness for my sins, and I'm being united with him in baptism as in his death so that I can live with Christ. As it says elsewhere in 1 Corinthians, behold, the old has gone, the new has come. If anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. This idea of being uh, dead to the old life and raised anew. And so the meaning of life is not that you're not going to have suffering or that everything is going to go well or that everyone's going to like you. But the meaning of the Christian life is this. No matter how bad it gets, there's something you're looking forward to. How many of you had a team on your your bracket, your Final Four bracket, in both games. In both games. If you lost the first one, was your day ruined? No, because you're like, I still have a shot at this, right? If you have a, a bad Thursday, does it ruin your weekend? No, you're like, I, I still have something to look forward to before I have to go back to work on Monday. Um, if you have a setback in anything, anything, but you have something bigger and greater on the other side of it to look forward to. Most of us do this with vacation. I don't, I don't like all that's going on at work or in life, but um, I have a vacation planned. And it allows me to survive or to suffer this because I have hope and my eyes are set on that. And what Paul is saying is our hope is in resurrection, Our hope is in that. And ultimately, whatever happens in this life, it makes sense because resurrection is still to come. But if you take resurrection out of it and you're gonna live not for yourself, but you're gonna live according to Christian ethics, which means you're gonna um, share with the poor, you're not gonna try and advance yourself through some kind of weird competition, you're gonna try and be communal in nature, um, you're going you're gonna to take a shot to the face and turn the other cheek because you know what? There's a better way. There's a higher way. You're not going to go your own way. I mean, you are going to go. As a Christian, you're not going to go your own way. You're going to try and go the right way. Like, that's a really bad strategy to succeed in life. Most of the business people, some, some of the business people that we would look at in society, you look at the trail of broken relationships and you go, wow, they really drove hard to get ahead. And they succeeded at that. Um, you can look at Mother Teresa or others and say, wow, they drove real hard 
to love, not thinking of themselves. And they succeeded, but it's radically different than the other way. And what Paul is saying is, if there is no resurrection, um, your Christian faith, this way of living, this self-negating way of living, is actually bankrupt. You should live a different way. That's actually where Nietzsche went with the ubermensch, which translated overman, but just where we kind of in modern English got superman. And this idea that a lot of German soldiers who, who carried Thus Spoke Zarathustra, his book, that talked about the superman, the overman, um, in their knapsacks during World War I and, and leading into other world wars, where this idea was, if there is no God, Christianity's dead, none of that matters, how do we really get meaning in life? And for Nietzsche, he said, somehow we have to learn how to transcend ourselves, continue some kind of evolutionary thing where we become a whole different kind of category altogether, where we write for ourselves our own tablet of virtues. Instead of the tablet of virtues written in stone, we write our own story and we become better than, above, over where the rest of mankind is. And so he had this kind of idealized vision of the overman. Can't you see how that works? What Nietzsche was saying and what Paul were saying are one and the same thing. Paul said if there's no resurrection, Christianity doesn't make sense. Nietzsche was saying there is no resurrection, Christianity doesn't make sense. How do I find some meaning a different way? Does that make sense? So if you have questions about the faith, either as someone that claims to be a Christian or someone that, 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 that thinks or feels like you're on the outside, this is a safe place. This is the place we wrestle with this and try and ask those questions because we care about it. So Paul comes to Lydia and it's really interesting, his interaction with Lydia. Uh, he comes to Lydia. It's the first time he preaches or anyone preaches uh, on European soil. And so he gets to this town. He goes to where he believes some people will be praying. And it says that he sat down uh, to speak to some women, and one of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in, in cloth, uh, purple cloth, who was a worshiper of God. It's an interesting phrase. So this is not a Christian, but this is a worshiper, uh, worshiper of God. Now, in the New Testament, or in Greek back then, we have this category of what was known as God-fearers, ones who feared God, or the, the, the technical term is just God-fearers. So they weren't Jews, they hadn't gone through the rites and rituals to become a Jew, but they weren't pagans. They were, they were people who were either interested in or intrigued by the Jewish God or believed in one God, kind of monotheistic, but as Gentiles, they were kind of outside of that stream, God-fearers. Uh, we have a mosaic. I can, I can put it up for you. This is a mosaic on the floor uh, of an ancient synagogue ruins. Maybe that's the next picture. Uh, in uh, Sardis. Sardis is a, an ancient city that's been ex excavated in uh, Turkey, modern-day Turkey. It's one of the, the cities that, one of the seven letters to the churches, if you've ever read the, the New Testament book of Revelation. Uh, there's seven letters that go to seven early church communities. One went to the town at Sardis. This is an ancient synagogue, very ancient, uh, that kind of was excavated, all the layers of dirt taken off to expose that mosaic that's still intact. So if I show it to you again now, where it's circled is the Greek phrase, God fear. So in this synagogue, it's talking about or allowing these people to kind of be at a certain kind of relationship, uh, not all full-fledged or all the way in, but they're, they're kind of um, in the culture and taken account of, and they're God fears. So this woman who was a worshiper of God, probably in a more loose sense, is this kind of an idea. Does that make sense? You track with me? Um, you guys are a lot better than the 845 crowd. Um, so, so Paul finds this woman, and the interesting thing, very interesting thing for me, is that he takes her from being a very abstract, loose God-fearer to hearing the message of Christ and resurrection and then being baptized, her and her household, into that belief to where she is now connected relationally 
to Jesus Christ in a submissive relationship where he is not only the Savior but Lord and her family are, are marked as followers of Christ. So the progression goes from here, which is very loose and abstract, and, and then you've got this kind of fulcrum, and then over to here. I would argue, and, and I've been watching it now for 20 years, and many of you, like me, will have experienced this story on, on all sides of it. But in our culture, a lot are raised culturally Christian. We've been in a household of faith. And we slowly shift away from Jesus and resurrection over to what I would call the God-fear category, which is, eh, I believe that maybe there's a God or certainly a higher power. And... Uh, really, for me, I'm a spiritual person. I'm a spiritual person. Um, and so we slide kind of that other way. And I think if you follow statistics or anything else, you'll see that more and more people are kind of sliding to this spot. Now, the interesting thing about this spot is if, if you actually think about it, what does it mean that I'm spiritual? I would, I would say it simply means this, that as I reflect um, on my own internal mental states and, and my own internal life, I realize there's some, something sacred to it. That, that in, in many ways, I am a spiritual person or a sacred being. And that I'm going to spend time and energy reading things, interacting with other people that only encourage and help me in my realization that I am a spiritual being, that this, that this is a spiritual world and that, that there's something sacred to me. Um, and I, the funny thing is, I don't disagree with that at all. Uh, I just ask the question, where does all that come from? What makes you spiritual? Like, what makes you sacred? What makes us, when we see injustice in the world, exploitation, uh, murder, I mean, all sorts of evils in the world that we can look in the news and see, or even locally, and we grieve inside as we empathize with victims of injustice. We're showing by our very nature that we realize those other people are also spiritual and sacred. They're made in the image of God, and they have dignity and worth and ought not be treated like they're being treated. We're, we're very aware of the spirituality of the world. My question is simply, if you don't posit God or the fact that you've been created by God, where do you get that sense of sacred? What really undergirds that? Um, where does it come from? The other part of feeling spiritual is really interesting. It always goes with, um, and I'm a good person. Let me say it again because it should be familiar, right? And I'm a good person. And I think the I'm a good person part simply means this. Uh, I have more friends than I do enemies, so I must be a good person. Uh, and when I do bad to people, I just slowly kind of exclude them and maybe, maybe talk bad about them, but I don't, like, physically hurt them. I'm not like those bad people right? And, or I'm so neutral that I'm not contentious like these other people that have very strong beliefs. And so since they are con have strong beliefs and are therefore contentious, which I don't think necessarily have to go together, but when it's viewed that way, I'm just going to have no beliefs and therefore I'm neutral. And can't you see how I get on with everybody better than those people that believe things strongly? But so we end up with this, I'm spiritual, uh, I'm good, and, and I want to continue on in this path growing up into that. And this is what I think Paul would say is, that's a great way for self-help. It, it is a great approach to self-help. There's a whole section of Barnes and Nobles uh, that has books that will help you continue to grow in that. But when you struggle, you still are left alone in that. And when you look out at the world and see injustice and people doing bad things to people and you go, there's something evil, you really have a tension with the fact that that evil in the world actually also resides in you too. 
And if we're really willing to admit it, we don't do the things we wish we would. We do too many of the things we wish we wouldn't. And, and somehow um, we know that life is a bit broken. We're aware of what's sacred. We also are aware of falling short of sacred. Does that make sense? And so self-help doesn't give us ultimate hope. Self-help gives us great technique and strategy for optimizing life, which isn't necessarily bad. But Paul is saying the tomb is empty. And you aren't just spiritual, but you've been reconciled, connected back relationally with God, with your creator. That you're fulfilled and you're no longer sacred and lonely, but you're sacred and blessed and in community that the bad in you has an answer. It's called grace. And the desires to somehow overcome have an example that says, no, somehow in humility and in love, we find a higher way. And that even in the challenges and the difficulty and the suffering or the martyrdom that comes with that, that you still have a hope that you look to because Jesus was raised from the dead and he gives you your hope in your resurrection day. That's the hope of Easter. You see, it's a very different thing. So here's Paul taking this God-fearer and saying, let me show you or help you understand this. And he's doing it by talking about and answering questions. There's an interesting thing. People that lead cults usually stay in one place. They don't, like Paul, go from city to city to city and say, I'll reason with you. I'll uh, I'll analyze this with you. I'll, I'll wrestle with you in this to talk about what it means to be in fellowship and and to go this whole different way where I'm submitting myself to being stoned, uh, at risk of death, being falsely imprisoned. I'm coming here to serve you with this message because I care about your redemption just like I care about my own. It's not really a cult leader kind of posture. It's someone who's been radically transformed in their own life and is passionate about the message getting to people who are hungry to try and uh, find answers to what it is they know exists because of the way it's in their gut, to find their way back to God. Does that make sense? Something really remarkable about what's going on there. When we get to the second part of this story, Pete didn't read, um, we we get to the story um, of Paul and Silas as they're going on about this town. And it says this, if you want to read in Acts chapter 16 with me, uh, beginning in verse 16. It says, when they were going to the place of prayer, one day they were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. This girl followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the most high God who are telling you the way to be saved. And she kept us up for many days. And finally, Paul became so troubled that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left her. Now, when the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Let me just stop right there and talk a little bit about Philippi. So Philippi, I've got a slide of the ancient ruins of Philippi. It's there today. Philippi was founded uh, by Philip II of Macedon. That's Alexander the Great's father. And he founded it uh, because it was near gold mines. And so a lot of the wealth that was driving the growth of Macedonia and eventually some of the conquests of Alexander the Great um, was coming from this region. And so he began that city. You can see it on the map in the next picture. It's right between the word Greece and Macedonia. You see Philippi about eight miles off the Aegean Sea. Uh, Paul came from Asia Minor across the sea, landed there, and then first preached the gospel in Europe at the city of Philippi. What happened a little bit before uh, Jesus in, in history was you had a triumvirate, three people ruling the Roman Empire. Uh, Empire. One of them was Julius Caesar, and then you had uh, Mark Antony, not um, Jennifer Lopez's ex, but the original Mark Antony, and then Octavius. 
and you had the assassination of Caesar, and you had a group of people that assassinated him that didn't want as much authority, and the leaders wanted more of the, the authority to be in the Senate, and you get this battle that happens at Philippi where those people that had killed Caesar are defeated by Mark Antony and Octavius, and so that ends this kind of civil war. Eventually, Octavius would uh, do away with Mark Antony, rule the empire by himself under the name of, I was going to make a Star Wars joke on the fly there, but I don't know the name of the emperor, Senator Palpatine. Palpatine. Thank you. I should have known where to look. Uh, uh, but so he, he gets rid of the competition and, and takes over and becomes Caesar Augustus and ushers in the Pax Romana, which is this, this big, long period of relative calm in the Roman Empire and expansion. Um, but so at Philippi, this civil war kind of comes to an end. So they resettled a bunch of veterans of that war, a bunch of Roman citizens. They basically gave them land around Philippi and said, you know, here we're honoring you for helping us fight and paying you your wages, so to speak, and you're going to be loyal to us. And they settled them there around Philippi. So Philippi, which eventually became the leading city in that region, uh, it's on the, uh, the Roman road, the, the via, begins with an E, um, the, the cobblestone road that the Romans built so that the horses and the chariots could go basically all the way from Palestine up and around to Rome. Uh, it's on that road, still had the wealth, and you have all of these very Roman people living there. It's, it's a very, it's a very, uh, it's a city of the empire. People that, that vote a certain way, think a certain way, identify a certain way. In the first serv- uh, service, someone said it's San Diego, um, where you have all these retired people from the military that, that retire, right? Uh, so this is the place And so when Paul upsets the economics of the city, which is what happens when you get people that are going to live this way and and instead choose to to take on the way of Christ, it it transforms them. And when they're transformed and the people in their community are transformed, it begins to upset the economics of the city. Paul, when he preached resurrection in, in the city of Ephesus, where they had the goddess Artemis, a lot of tourists or pilgrims would come through and they would sell little, little figurines of Artemis, little silver ones. And just like if you think of a football game today or anywhere else, Disneyland, you know, it's like you got Mickey Mouse. There's a lot of money in sending people away with Mickey Mouse. You know what I mean? You can make a lot of money in that. If you tell them, oh, wait, Mickey Mouse wasn't Walt Disney's first cartoon character. It was actually, you know, then all the Mickey Mouse stuff becomes valueless, Right? that really upsets the economics of a place. That's what happened to Paul in Ephesus. And, and, and so people are like, well, what am I doing with the goddess Artemis if this is true? So they, they have this riot. And the people that, that were there kind of supporting Paul take and whisk him away so that he doesn't get killed on the spot. Because people really care about their, their money and their economic viability. But so this is what happens in Philippi. There are men who are exposed exploiting a young prophetess woman and making money off her. It's an age-old story. And so they're profiting as they utilize her um, doing what she's doing. Paul puts an end to it, and now all of a sudden it's cut into their economics, and they're saying, we don't want this anymore. And what do they appeal to the magistrates, the head of the city? They say, this is un-Roman. Like, this is not our way of doing it. It's not our custom. It's not something that should be acceptable here. It should be violating the law. And they take and they throw Paul and Silas in prison. And so Paul and Silas are in prison. Uh, They've upset the apple cart. And this is what happens. This is, by the way, after they were severely flogged, they're put into prison. So they're beat up. They're bloody. They're in the inner sanctuary of the prison, the inner cells. They're fastened to stocks. And verse 25, Acts 16, uh, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Another, another thing is when you're reading self-help literature, you're pretty hard-pressed to find reason in the, in the inner recesses of a prison where you're bloodied up to be singing songs. It's, it, it, unless it's a very 
unless you're really exercising the power of positive thinking and, and you're really employing that as a discipline and says, I'm going to benefit more greatly here if I sing right now than if I get upset, which you can, but it's not the same thing as being motivated by the relationship you have with your creator that's leading you to tell people about the fact that they can, they can be reconciled with God and you're in this and you're saying, you know what, we've had a lot of fruit in this city. We've been able to talk to a lot of people and, and God's doing something. That no matter what happens to us, to him be the glory. There's still reason for thanksgiving despite our suffering. Like that's the kind of hope Paul's talking about in living. So this is what happens. Uh, there's an earthquake at about midnight as they were singing and, and, and praying um, and the other prisoners are listening as they're doing this. Uh, there's such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and at once all the prison doors flew open. Old prison, you, sh- you change the foundation, and, and it, the door jams, and the bolts, and I mean, they just come unhinged. It's no longer integrous, the building and the walls. And so it opens up. And the doors come open, everybody's chains fall off. And the jailer wakes up, and when he saw the prison, by the way, the chain's falling off. Again, you have a bolt into some kind of a brick wall. You bring an earthquake to that bolt. I mean, their chains fell off. This is what you're looking for (laughs) to happen when you're in jail after you've been flogged. This is actually what you'd be praying for. Um, This is, in my mind, a miracle. You know, this is really cool stuff. Uh, So the jailer wakes up. When he sees that it's opened up, the prison's opened up, he draws his sword and he's about to kill himself. Why? Because the ethic of Romans was the jailer's responsible for the people in his jail. Just like the the old kind of seagoing ethic that the captain's responsible for the ship. So, you know, the captain has to go down with the ship, right? Fascinating, you know, but that's the ethic. It's the honor system. And the jailer says, I've failed, my prisoners have escaped, so therefore I have to do the the honorable thing and I have to take my own life. And Paul shouts, no, don't do that. Paul's a Roman citizen, by the way. He understands it. He says, you don't have to kill yourself. Um, He doesn't say you don't have to kill yourself because like you're loved by God and your life matters. Like he says, no, you don't have to kill yourself because we're still here. Like the reason you'd have to kill yourself doesn't exist anymore because we're still here. And the jailer calls for lights. People rush in with torches so that they can finally see. And they fall trembling before Paul and Silas. And, I mean, think of what the jailer's thinking. Like, why are you still here? I mean, it's not missed on the jailer, right? Like, the jailer gets it. Like, I don't understand. I heard your singing. I saw you get flogged for what you believed. I understand that you're upsetting the apple cart with the magistrates and everybody else. Like, I've, I've, I, I'm aware of what's going on with your testimony. And now anyone in their right mind would have escaped. Anyone in their right mind. But here you still are. And he's like, falls down trembling. I mean, this, is a very, this is a real story. Like, what's going on? Like, I'm... I was about to take my life. I mean, the adrenaline is still flowing. And at night, by, by the light of a torch and the flickering, I see that you're still there and you shouldn't be there. So this Roman jailer is, is beside himself. So listen to his question. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So now it's not necessarily the preaching with words, but it's the example, the lifestyle that this person's connecting with and saying there's something radically different here. And it's radically different, but winsome. It's not trying to force itself on me, but it's drawing me in. And so I want to know about it. Uh, I, want to, I want to join it. What must I do to be as you are, to know what you know, to experience what you experience, to find that love? And so what must I do to be saved? And Paul and Silas and the others reply, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. You and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in the house. And at that hour of the night, the jailer took them, washed their wounds. This isn't just an intellectual thing. Like he has been moved. They've captured his heart. So he takes them out of the jail, washes their wounds 
and they go eat. They're baptized immediately, he and his family, and the, the jailer brings them into his house and he sets a meal before them. And he was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. Really fascinating. The, the preaching of Jesus and, and this reconciliation leads to the table. That's the other thing Tamara was saying to me this morning. Like, Ken, you're like all about hospitality these days, right? Uh, hospitality means um, friendly to guests. I mean, it's just simple. It's Latin. That, that with your guests or your strangers, that you show them friendliness. And, and so, I mean, you still go to the, the Middle East now or other ancient cultures or cultures that have roots that way. And even if they're poor, when you show up, they're going to go take the best of what they have or the only thing that they might have. And they're going to come and serve you because there's something important about that. And so this is what's happening. It's like you now, we're, we're actually in relationship we're actually of one and the same. We're a part of this believing community now. And, and so we're going to come and share this meal and, and we're going to fellowship together. So following Christ seems to always lead to a meal. In fact, Jesus says, come and remember me. And he does it by inviting people to a meal, uh, the Passover meal or, or communion. It's this fascinating thing. It's this incredibly relational thing. And, and it really brings the dignity of the whole thing back full, full center, which, which isn't about just my own spirituality, right? And so Tamara's like, hey, why are, you, why are you always so grumpy on Easter, number one? Number two, how come like Easter dinner is like always something you're fighting, you know? Um, isn't that what we're supposed to be about? Like, isn't, it, isn't this what you're saying like you want the kids growing up in, you know? And my answer in my head is always the same. Tamara, I don't have time for hospitality. Which is kind of the whole point, right, of hospitality is making time. And then what comes out of my mouth is like mutter. And if you're a guy and your wife's usually right, you know that you don't actually ever admit that they're right. You just mutter and walk off. And then you guys go to the, you know, in-laws for Easter, Easter brunch. Um, so this is, uh, this is the part that I get to learn with you, that especially in today's fast-paced culture, that somehow we're trying to, in our meal times, where we make the time and sit across from sacred people, remember that we have a hope. Remember that everything is spiritual for a reason because God has made us that we are made in his image and that every one of us, even when we get things wrong, have dignity and worth and that somehow we wrestle this thing out together in a messy way as we sit around the table and kind of partake of that together. It's incredibly important. So when we come today to celebrate Easter, like this holiday, and we're doing a meal, we're really trying to say somehow we're, we're wanting to capture the magic of encountering Jesus. It's what we're trying to do today. It's what we're actually trying to do on Monday through Friday of any week as well when we sit at the table. That when we do this, when we sit down together to have this meal and fellowship, we're trying to ca uh, capture once again the magic of, of this relationship with Jesus. I love C.S. Lewis because for him, he's like, we should be as kids who feel like the whole atmosphere is charged with magic that the angels literally are, are singing and dancing all around us that at any moment you know the dragons could come flying in like that that reality in some sense in a child's mind fits truth better than our minds when we get uh, a little too educated to believe in, in childish things like that I think the table is where we come back to connect once again that no life is magical it's all spiritual. At any moment right now, I could look someone in the eyes or give them a hug and create a moment or a memory or value a sacred being the way they should be valued. At any moment, I could stop and point to nature and the changing of the seasons or the sunset and talk to my kids about beauty and wonder and have it be charged with, with all of the best that Renaissance painters tried to bring, uh, bring about. 
See, see, reality really is more like what the kids see than what the adults see. And so C.S. Lewis, I love it. He said, someday we all grow old enough to read fairy tales again. We get out-educated from our adulthood to become childlike once again. And hopefully, if we're lucky, have the faith of a child. So my hope this morning, I want to, just by way of joke, I want to read you a couple things. These are one-liners. I like one-liners. But I want you to listen to these particular one-liners because in a good one-liner, it opens up worlds, worlds of meaning or, or visual imagery or things to wrestle with. Like one line expands or explodes our minds. Here you go. If at first you don't succeed, then skydiving probably isn't for you. If at first you don't succeed, then skydiving probably isn't for you. That really, that's one line. But think of how much meaning is in that. How how much you can visualize, right? Some of you are going like, yeah, how would you do it again? Like, what what does that look like, you know? Uh, a A day without sunshine is like night. It's one phrase but we laugh because it's like, man, there's a lot to be said about that, right? The wisdom of the ages is in that one line. Uh, I don't mean to offend here. 99% of lawyers give the rest a bad name. (laughs) You can play with that all day long, can't you? You can apologize for it to Neil Cole, Um, You can, you know, but it's got so much meaning. Honk if you love peace and quiet. (laughs) It just sucks you into it, doesn't it, right? Uh, Always remember that half the people you know are below average. (laughs) Let me read to you from Eugene Peterson. It is not easy to convey a sense of wonder, let alone resurrection wonder, to another person. It's the very nature of wonder to catch us off guard, to circumvent expectations and assumptions. Wonder can't be packaged and it can't be worked up. It requires some sense of being there and some sense of engagement. Father, Easter, resurrection, one line, one phrase, one idea, one concept, it holds infinite worlds of meaning and wonder within it. Only you, I believe, can help us capture that, experience that, fall in love with that, be um, transfixed by that. And Father, there are people here today that are desperate to have that experience. They're desperate to know you. They're desperate to know that you're real. They're desperate for just a shred that they could go on. And I pray that they would reach out to you now and just ask that God, if you would show yourself, we would believe God, would people ask to see you? God, would you show yourself? Would you light a fire? Would you give some inkling that would allow them to continue forward so that they could begin to experience and to sense the full wonder of resurrection, of relationship, of being a Christian, of being in a spiritual community, of having a hope to look forward to? We pray that in Jesus' name, amen.